G'day everyone, I'm Josh, a fourth year engineering student, I'll be reading the Bible. The passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Now, uh, at Christian Union, we like to open the Bible and see what it says to us. Uh, it might seem a bit strange to you that we read this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but in first semester... We work through the first five chapters of this book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in the first century. Uh, it's a very interesting book, fascinating. If you are with us for some of those, you would have heard some of the issues that are raised. Uh, part of what happens in this book is that the Corinthian church has written to Paul, uh, asking some questions about things that they're uh, trying to wrestle with and work out. But Paul has also heard some things that are happening there that he's not so happy about and he's trying to raise those with them. And chapter 6 is part of that. You'll find an outline uh, opposite the passage and I'll be referring to the passage as we go through. I think it's probably true to say that most people in our community have some sort of impression of Christianity. They've got their ideas about what it is like and some sort of experience of it. And they tend to move towards one of two poles, I suspect. One face of Christianity is that Christians are sort of like the moral police of our society. We claim that we have this God-given right to uphold public morality, especially when it comes to sex. 
and an obligation to tell people and insist on it in our community. And so in a very negative way, I guess that that might be seen as Christians imposing their morals on others. You must not do that. If you do that, woe betide you. Maybe positively you might think they have a moral clarity about difficult and contentious issues. But Christianity is seen as something that excludes people, keeps them on the outside. But there's another face of Christianity that many have experienced, the love and welcome of Christians. Christians want to share the love of Jesus with everybody. I recently read about um, what happened at York Cathedral in England uh, last year, I think it was. Uh, There was a gay pride parade through York and it began on the steps of the cathedral. And this is what the minister, senior minister at the cathedral said to the gathered uh, marchers. He said, your cathedral invites everyone to discover God's love through our welcome, worship, learning and work. I'd like to thank those who've organised this event for this invitation to speak. It gives me the opportunity to tell you that our welcome at your cathedral is completely and unreservedly inclusive. So there's two faces of Christianity which are hard to reconcile, aren't they? One exclusive, the other very inclusive. One comes across as maybe harsh and intolerant, discriminatory, which is becoming increasingly illegal in our country. A wall. Other, culturally attuned, acceptable. Open doors, pulling the wall down, but maybe compromising and gutless. Well, 1 Corinthians 6, this chapter we're looking at, is about sexual immorality, including homosexuality. One of the hot topics of today. And it throws us into these sort of issues. Corinth was a city that, especially in previous generations, had been known for its sexual licence. In fact, somebody had invented the word to Corinthianise, which meant to educate people in sexual promiscuity, in being as free and expressive sexually as you could possibly be. And a church had started there. People had come to faith in Jesus because Paul, the apostle, this early Christian leader, had come and preached to them Jesus, his death and resurrection for them. But it had left them in all sorts of confusion and things they weren't quite sure about. And in this chapter, we deal with two things, with lawsuits, especially between members of the church and church members, Christians visiting prostitutes. And in the middle, in verses 9 to 11, we have sort of a bridge where Paul zooms out and has a wider canvas, a wider focus. Now, lawsuits. Uh, It seems that what's happening in verses 1 to 8 is that some in the church are taking others in the church to the secular courts. They've got their disputes. They seem to be civil matters. They don't seem to be all all that important. They're probably things like, you know, the back fence blew over in the storm. Who's going to pay to fix it? Or maybe there was a contract to build a a building and the contract sort of fell apart and there's a dispute and somebody thinks they owe money and the other doesn't. And to resolve it, they've gone to the secular courts, to the magistrates. Is anybody here in that situation? You taking anybody to court in your church? Now, it's probably not that, that big a deal for us at the moment, although it may become that. So we won't spend our time on it. It's just worth saying, Paul says to them, listen, guys, don't take to the outside. Not only is that flaunting your dirty laundry in public, God has given you the wisdom to work it out within yourselves. So work it out. But actually, wouldn't you rather be uh, uh, wronged and even suffer some loss than create that sort of division and spite? within the church of God. Well, that's that. If you want to talk more about it, let's chat afterwards. But let's spend our time on prostitutes because 
Now, that isn't more of an issue, is it? I hope not. But in the second half of the chapter, the issue of prostitutes raised the whole issue of sexuality. How do you express sex? What's it for? How does what God think about sex? And that is a hot-button issue of our times and of our lives. Now, the presenting issue in verse, uh, comes out in verses 15 and 16. Some of them are visiting prostitutes. Now, the word prostitute, pornes in Greek, is almost the same as the word porneia, which covers every sort of illicit sexual relationship. It's the word from which we get pornography. So it'll have that sort of familiar ring to it. And sexual immorality in the Bible covers any sexual activity that isn't with your spouse, whether it's with your body or your imagination. It's not just intercourse. It's arousal and other sorts of sexual activity as well. And in verses 12 and 13, we get a bit of a feel for how the Corinthians think about sex. Now, you notice in this translation that there are quotation marks which are around what the editors think the Corinthians are saying, their slogans. Now, in the original text, the way it was written, uh, Greek was actually written with no punctuation, you know, no full stops, no, no question marks, um, and no gaps between the words. But it's actually quite easy to work out what's going on most of the time. But what you don't know is where to put quotation marks, because sometimes, it often happens in speech, you quote someone else, but... Um, Uh, it's not easy to indicate that in Greek. And so the editors have tried to work out where the Corinthians are saying something and Paul's quoting them and where Paul is responding. And I think they've probably got it right in verses 12 and 13. The Corinthians are saying, I've got the right to do anything. But Paul responds to that, hold on, let's qualify that a bit. You might have the right to do anything, but not everything is good to do. Not everything is beneficial. I've got the right to do anything, they say. But Paul says, but I don't want to be mastered by anything. I don't want to be dominated and controlled even by my own passions. And then verse 13, more clearly, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. See, this is their slogan. Now, they've got ideas that are actually on the right track. You might remember Jesus in Mark chapter 7, when he talked about clean and unclean foods with the Pharisees and his disciples. He said, food can't make you unclean. What you eat, what happens to it? Well, it goes into your stomach, and then where does it go? It just gets flushed down the toilet, doesn't it? It doesn't go into your heart. It can't make you unclean. It can't affect your relationship with God. And they've taken that to the next step. Well, food's for the stomach. Stomach's for the food. God's going to destroy them both. That makes no difference to life. But they've extended that to sex. And they're thinking, well, what's sex? It's just bodily, like food, isn't it? I've got an appetite. I've got a desire. I'm hungry. I'm, I'm, I'm aroused. I'm sexy. I, I just want satisfaction. And just like it's bodily, well, it must be like food. It doesn't make you unclean. Now, there's probably more going on than just that, that is, in the culture of that world. There was quite a clear distinction for most people between your spirit and your body. Your spirit really mattered, the spiritual side of you, the, 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 the real you. And your body was sort of like, as one writer said, one of the philosophers said, your body is like a prison. And what you want to do is get rid of it. You know, like a snake sheds its skin, it sloughs off its skin. So the aim of life is to slough off your body and just be purely spiritual. And if that's the aim of life, and if what really matters is the spiritual stuff, then what you do with your body really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't really matter who you have sex with. It's just just body. 
It's just recreational. It's a bodily appetite. So you you go to a restaurant and you're looking through the menu of what to eat and you see sirloin steak and you think, today, yeah, I really feel like sirloin steak. I'll order that. I'll eat that. Well, what's wrong with that? That's okay, isn't it? It's just a bodily appetite. You're just hungry. And that's what you feel like. Well, the same thing with sex. You see a woman, you see a bloke, and you think, they're tasty. I'll go for it. That's all it is. It's just a bodily appetite. It's what's now brought the culture of recreational sex to our country, to our culture, to our community, of Tinder, of swiping one way or the other way. Well, how does Paul tackle the issue? He could say, well, you're right. doesn't matter. Do what you like. Go ahead. You can't control it. Just be yourself. Or maybe you'd expect Paul to whip out his Ten Commandments out of his back pocket. Look, commandment number six, do not commit adultery. See, God says it. You believe it. That should settle it. But five, is it? Seven. Seven, sorry. Seven. Six is murder. Thank you. Thanks for correcting me, Henry. But in Paul's mind, that is too simplistic. That doesn't actually help people very much as they grapple with sexuality. And so I hope you heard, as the passage was read to us by Josh, this phrase that keeps coming up right through this chapter, but don't you know. Verse 15, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Verse 16, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her? Verse 19, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? As Paul thinks that, we need to revolutionise our thinking, what we know and understand, in order to change our behaviour. It's what they're thinking that's creating the problem, not simply what they're feeling. Better, truer thinking is what's needed. That's what will help. And did you hear as well that every time he says, don't you know, he talks about your body. It's what you think about your body that's going to help you work out what to do and why do it in the area of sex. Verse 15, don't you know your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16, don't you know he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? 19, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? So how do you think about your body? I want you for a minute to become conscious of your body. You do that, your bum firmly planted on that bit of whatever it is, green stuff. Your toes into your shoes, the hair on top of your head. How do you think about your body? Do you think of it as a sort of a shell, not the real you, something you're imprisoned in? Maybe even something you hate. I don't like my body. I don't like the shape of it. I don't like the feel of it. I'd, I'd like to be freed from it. And I'm so glad it was only temporary. One day I'll, I'll discard it. I'll, I'll leave it behind. It'll just get buried and, or it'll get um, burnt up. Or maybe you think, my body is all I am actually. I am a body. I'm pure physiology. I'm, I'm biochemistry. That, that's what I am. I'm just a whole bunch of, of chemicals floating, gathered together uh, that give me nerve sensations. Some of them are painful. Some of them are pleasant. And so my aim is to maximise the pleasure and minimise the pain so that my body, which is all that I am, has the best possible journey through this life. Only my body is the real me. It just ends at death. I've got to make the most of it while I can. I'm nothing but body. I'm, I'm sort of like a billiard ball. 
that bounces around the world, but all I am is a self-contained little body. Or maybe you think, the body is not the real me. I will not be defined by my biology. I'll be defined by who I want to be, despite my body and everything my body might be. Or you might think, my body is, well, it's my possession. It's actually my most precious possession. And therefore, I will do with my body what I want. My body is a blank canvas. It's my artist canvas. I'll paint on it whatever I want to do. I will act in any way I want to act. No one is going to tell me what I can do with my body because it's my body. How, how do you think about your body? Well, let's listen to Paul. As he talks to Christians about how they should understand and think about their body. He actually starts back in verse 13, 14. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. But the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And by his power God raised the Lord from the dead, the Lord from the dead, the Lord Jesus that is, and he will raise us also. See, the slogan of Corinth, I presume, is like food is for the stomach is for food, food is for the stomach, so the body is for sex and sex is for the body. You can crystallise it down to that sort of slogan. Sex is just something you do with your body. It's what your body's for. It's almost the pinnacle of your bodily existence. So just go for it. But Paul says that is far too low a view of your body and of sex. Your body is actually for the Lord. That is, for the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is for your body. And how do you know that? You know that because God raised Jesus to life again physically. And he will raise you as well. Your body will be raised. It has an eternal destiny. You won't slough off your body, but your body will be resurrected. Whether it gets resurrected after you die and are buried and cremated... Or Jesus comes back and transforms you. There will be continuity between your present body and your future body. Your eternal body. It's the same body, transformed, yes. Fixed up to be suitable for eternity, but the same body, the same you. And therefore, the Lord is for your body. He's not against your body. He doesn't see it as a waste of time, a waste of creative energy. It's who you are. He made you bodily. And he will resurrect you bodily. And in verse 14, you see the change in language. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Raise us, that's raise your body. Because in Paul's mind, you are your body. You're not less than your body. You may be more than your body, but you're not less than your body. You are an embodied being. Who'd have thought? That resurrection, a belief in our future, the next life, actually affects how we treat our bodies and use our bodies sexually now. But in Paul's mind it does. The resurrection changes how we think about sex because it changes how we think about our body. But that's only the first piece to the puzzle, to the picture. Secondly, in verse 15, he says, Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? That is... As well as a future destiny for your body, there's a present reality, a present relationship between your body and Jesus Christ. Now, many of us will be familiar with the Bible's teaching that the church, corporately, is the body of Christ. And Paul pictures it in other places. In fact, further on in this book, in chapter 12, 
as sort of like a, well, you're like an organ in the body. That is, all of us have different functions, but our unity is created by our diversity and our common possession of the Holy Spirit. There is unity in diversity. And we're to use our gifts in a physical, bodily way to contribute to the health and the growth of the body. But here the focus is it's the same teaching, but the focus is not so much on our relationship with each other, but our relationship to Jesus. We belong bodily to Jesus. My body is an organ of his body because I've been joined in an intimate and permanent union with Jesus when I became a Christian. I've entrusted my future and my life to him, all of me to him. It, it's a bit like marriage. Yeah. Other parts of the Bible, Paul will develop this further, but it's implied here. Do you go to weddings? Aiden and Jess are getting married on Saturday week. Weddings are great times. Come to their wedding. I'll I'll invite you. (laughs) Ask Aiden when and where it is. It's a public event. Anybody can come. Because at weddings, people publicly make promises to each other. It's a public promise of a permanent commitment, one to another, a man to a woman, a woman to a man, that begins... A new relationship that's different to what it was before. It begins a marriage. And Jesus has already done that with us. Publicly, permanently committed himself to our welfare. To love and serve us. To die for us. To forgive us. And make him, make us his forever. And we, when we become Christians, respond to that. And we commit ourselves to love and trust and cherish and submit and honour him forever. And so we're bound to him as embodied people. My body is united to Jesus. And in verse 2nd half 15, Paul draws out the implication of that. Shall I take a member of Christ then and unite them with a prostitute? Will I take an organ from Christ's body and make it an organ of a prostitute's body? It's, and in Paul's mind, that's just unthinkable. You can't do that. A prostitute stands for everything opposed to Jesus. How could you ever think that those two things could sort of exist at the same time, to coexist together? With a wife and husband, yes, because that reflects the union and relationship and intimacy with Jesus. But a prostitute, no. And he's actually wanting you, and I don't know whether this is helpful or unhelpful, to imagine it happening. You uniting your body, which belongs to Christ, which is part of him, with a prostitute. And he's saying, if you imagine that, it, it should just sort of blow up in your face. You think, no, I can't do it. And you can't. But there's another piece to the puzzle in verse 16, where he quotes from the Old Testament. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Because it says back in Genesis chapter 2, the two will become one flesh. That is, there's a truth about sex itself. See, sex is different to a stake. Because you eat a steak and there's no one flesh experience with the steak. It's just a steak. It just, you eat it, you masticate, you, whatever happens inside there, all the digestive stuff and it all gets broken down and out it goes the other end and you're still the same person. But sex is different to that. It unites you with someone. You become one with them. It's a relational act that joins you. And in the physicalness of it, in the nakedness, in the openness, in the transparency and in the interpenetration of bodies. It reflects what's actually happening 
relationally and personally. Two people are being naked and open with one another and interpenetrating, becoming one. It's more than merely physical. And you know that, don't you? You know it intuitively, even if you don't know it experientially. Let me give you a look at Is rape the same as assault? That's not, is it? it? It's different. It's a whole different category of thing. Yeah, in one sense, rape is just assault, isn't it? A report has come out this morning about sexual assault on university campuses in Australia. Its finding is that in the last two years, 7% of university students in Australia have been sexually assaulted. That is, raped or something similar. I read that and I'm appalled. Now, I'd be appalled if it was assault, but not nearly as appalled as sexual assault. Because in sexual assault, somebody's very person is violated. It's not just a, you know, I, I, I might lose my temper and thump you on the back and you get a bit of a bruise there, but that's so different to sexual assault. They're not in the same category. We know that sex is different to other merely physical things. And Paul draws out some of that in verse 18. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Other sins are, are outside the body. Other sins don't affect you, affect you at that deep level. Sexual sins aren't worse than others in their culpability, but in their effects. Because in sex, it's designed this way by God, it's meant to, to glue two people together, you know, like Velcro. Velcro, you, you put it together, it's hard to pull apart. In fact, sometimes when you pull apart Velcro, it pulls the Velcro off whatever it's stitched to. And that's sort of what happens with sex. It glues two people together. And if you do it casually, if you think this is just a bit of fun, when you come apart, it rips apart the people involved. It expresses and helps to create the deepest unity and intimacy that's possible between two human beings. And if you use it with a prostitute, if you use it with pornography, use it recreationally, outside that public permanent union of marriage, that is to misuse it, is to abuse God's purpose and design for sex. And ultimately, because it's that, it will backfire, it will hurt all those involved. And then he says, don't you know, verse 19, that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, God sent his spirit himself to dwell and reside in your body. Not just in your mind, not just in your spirit, but in your body. And then, therefore, if you're a Christian, your body is a temple of God. It's holy and special to him. Now, this isn't about keeping your body buff or not smoking. It's about not doing something unholy with your body, like sexual immorality. He extends it in verse 9 and he says, look, you're not your own, you know. Your body belongs to Jesus because he bought it with a price of his own death. He gave his life for you. So you're not free to do with your body as you like. It belongs to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. And therefore he says, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Don't, Don't play games with it. Don't muck around with it. Don't feed it and encourage it. And when he says flee it, I presume in his mind he's got the picture of Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament and Potiphar's wife? Genesis 39, if you want to read it. Joseph has been sold by his brothers as a slave into Egypt. And he ends up in Potiphar's household, who's a sort of high official. Um, And Potiphar's wife takes a liking to the handsome, buff young man, Joseph, who's working as a slave in the household. 
and she tries to seduce him. And Joseph resists. One day she catches him, though, with no one else in the house, and he grabs his, she grabs his garment. And what does Joseph do? He runs. He just hightails out of there, leaves his cloak behind, takes off, buff naked, to flee from sexual immorality. Because that would be not only to sin against Potiphar and his wife, but against God who made him and made sex. And that's the picture that we're meant to have in our mind. See, Paul assumes that sexual arousal and desire can be powerful. Flee it. He also understands that sexual immorality is all around us, on the internet and imagination, in movies and TV shows, in the relationships we have with people, girlfriends, boyfriends. Sexual immorality is there. No more than it was in that culture. In fact, it was much more in that culture. But it's increasingly in ours. He says, first response is flee. Just get out of there. Second response, as we've seen in, the, in, in this section, keep re-educating your mind. How you think about your body. Don't you know? But in the last couple of minutes, let me think about the wider canvas that comes in verses 9 to 11. It's one of the most confronting and comforting little sections in the Bible, I think. Confronting. Because Paul is very clear. There are lifestyles that exclude you from the kingdom of God. Don't you know, he says, verse 9, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor men who have sex with men nor thieves or greedy or drunkards or slanders or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It includes sexual sins, but it's much wider, isn't it? Thieves, people who rob others, shoplifters. The greedy who trample over others in the pursuit of their wealth. The slanderers who use words with violence to vilify and wound others, like on Facebook. Swindlers who scam and cheat others. Sexual sins aren't worse, but they're there and they're part of it. A lifestyle continuing in those sort of activities excludes you. And this is relevant to our situation at the moment. Paul very explicitly includes male homosexuality. In very explicit language, he uses two words. One refers to the passive partner in a male homosexual action and the other the active partner. Now, he's not talking about same-sex attraction. Many of us may be same-sex attracted. It's living out that lifestyle that Paul has a problem with. And as I said, Corinth was more sexually promiscuous than 21st century Perth by miles. To have a mistress was normal. Homosexuality, especially with slaves, was normal and there was no stigma attached to it whatsoever. But for those who belong to, to Jesus Christ, both then and now, then sex is either for marriage to a spouse of the opposite gender or abstinence from sex. There's no room, I don't think, to change that, to compromise on it or to see people about it. But verse 11 is stunning. And that is what some of you were. So he's talking to the Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. Lots of you were those things. You were homosexuals. You were thieves. You were adulterers. You were swindlers. But... You were washed. And in the Greek, the word but comes three times. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, sex is something that can make you feel very dirty. And Paul says, you've been washed. It can make you feel disqualified. I'm not fit for anything. I'm useless. And Paul says, you've been sanctified, set apart by God for his purposes. 
Sex can make you feel condemned and guilty. And Paul says, but you've been justified. Do you feel the, the overwhelming love and grace and welcome of that? No matter what you have been, no matter what you have done. So I know Christians who've been prostitutes, both male and female, but they've been justified and washed and included. In your past, I don't know what's there. In your present, I'm not quite sure what's there. But it does not disqualify you unless you refuse to turn away from it. Unless you insist that continuing in that lifestyle, despite all you now know, you're just going to keep doing it. And even for the Corinthians, some of them are still visiting prostitutes. He doesn't say, you're not a Christian because you're doing that. But he does say, stop doing it, flee from it. Therefore, he says in verse 9, don't be deceived. Because it is easy to be deceived about these things, to think, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's just, just body. It's just a bit of fun. I remember a student from one of the other unis. Um, he came to me one day. He was part of the CU there. And he said to me, Tim, I, I just want you to know that um, me and my girlfriend have started sleeping together. And I must have groaned or something. He said, oh, don't worry about it. It's so good. I, I can't believe how good it is. I said, of course it's good. God designed it to be good. But that doesn't mean it's right. Don't be deceived. Just because it feels good doesn't mean it's right. Those who persist in sexual immorality will not enter the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean if you've done it, you won't. It doesn't mean if you do it tomorrow, you won't. We lapse, we struggle. But if you say, no, I'm just going to keep in that direction, God is clear, you will not enter the kingdom. But for everybody who has, everybody who does, there's the opportunity of wide open welcome. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So flee sexual immorality. And don't be deceived. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for making our bodies yours. Please help us to believe that and treat our bodies as belonging to you in all those terrific good ways. And so live lives that glorify you with our bodies. Amen.